This is when I, I miss having that 60 second little video that normally plays as I make my way up front to get myself situated. Uh, you see what you don't see is, is when I am doing that, I'm not just putting my water bottle in the particular place where I like it to be or, or making sure that my iPad is actually in the place I want it to be at. Uh, inside, I'm, I'm giving one last little prayer in my head, right? Hoping, uh, praying to God that, that I won't stumble over my words and that the message that he has for us this morning will be clear. So uh, again, I'm missing my, my comfort blanket this morning. It was a short walk. Thank you, Joe. You're right. It was. And, and I can't complain because I'm wearing shorts. I'm wearing short sleeves and I'm outside this morning. So this is lovely. Um, how's the volume in the back, everybody? Rick, we're good? All right. If Rick says we're good, then we're good. Oh, you want me to be louder, Rick? Okay. We can make that happen. How's that? Sound a little bit better? All right. So I have a feeling that there is a very strong possibility that over the last few weeks, there have been more people as a percentage in our congregation paying attention to the lottery than normal. Uh, if you didn't hear the big news over the last couple weeks, uh, the, the Mega Millions lottery was up to, does anybody know what the grand prize was? For the Mega Millions, nobody saw this on the news? No church debt. $1.5 billion was the Mega Millions lottery. Now, because this, this Mega Millions lottery reached such an astronomical number, people that normally would not be tempted to go out and buy a lottery ticket, sane, normal, rational people, found a way to justify to themselves that somebody has to win, and it might as well be me. So they went out to their local gas stations, and they spent their $10 just so that they would have a chance, right? Some chance any chance at all, no matter how small it might be, to win, win this kind of uh, life-altering, mind-blowing sum of money. And this isn't actually a, a sermon about whether or not, as Christians, we should play the lottery. So if any of you did and were nervous before to raise your hands and acknowledge that you knew what the jackpot was, you are safe today. But the truth is, people rushed to their local 7-Eleven just so that they could have, listen to this, a one in 300 million chance of winning $1.5 billion. And the truth is, it's kind of false advertising because you really don't get $1.5 billion. This actually kind of sounds like theft to me, uh, but there is a big winner whenever there's a lottery and it's not the person who wins, it's the IRS and your state taxing agencies. The person who won that $1.5 billion, depending on the state that they live in, they walk away with a mere 500 million, while various tax organizations get $1 billion. Doesn't seem fair, does it? Now, if, if we can talk ourselves into this idea that one in 300 million is really not that bad of odds, if we can talk ourselves into this idea that it's worth a roll of the dice to see if we can win, um, maybe let's contrast it to odds that work in the other way. Did, did you know that if you live for 80 years on this earth, we have a couple people here today that have lived 80 years on this earth. Raise your hand. A few of you. Okay. Did you know that if you live 80 years on this earth, you have a one in 15,300 chance of being struck by lightning? Doesn't that seem entirely too great of odds? One in 15,000 chance. Knowing these odds, though, 
we still will push for 10 more minutes out on the boat when we see the storm rolling in, right? Uh, if we're out on the golf course and the storm starts coming, the rain is coming, we'll still try to push and finish the 18th hole, even though we know we're holding lightning rods above our heads, basically. You see, the logical part of our brains, they gauge risk and they gauge reward. And then we make a decision based off what we think those risks are and what the rewards might be. If we feel that the risk is enough, we will deal with a certain, I'm sorry, the reward is enough, we will deal with a certain level of risk, no matter how logically impossible the odds might be. That pursuit of that billion dollars is enough to sometimes let us let go of our rationalities. Uh, do you remember the movie The Empire Strikes Back? Yeah, okay. Probably maybe the best Star Wars movie ever made. There's a scene where Han Solo is fleeing from uh, 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 TIE fighters chasing him. If you don't know what TIE fighters are, they're spaceships. I'll tell you later. But anyway, he decides he's going to elude the TIE fighters by cutting through an asteroid field. And at this news, his, his robotical friend C-3PO says, Han, I don't know if you know this, but the chances of you navigating an asteroid field are 1 in 3,000 720, if I remember the exact number. One in 3,720. Does anybody know Han Solo re reply? He says, never tell me the odds. Right? He wants to trust his gut. Now listen, as I considered how we should end this sermon series uh, distorted that we've been walking through in the book of Acts, something inspired me uh, of what I had read over the last few weeks, and specifically in regards to how uh, Paul approached sharing the gospel uh, with the Jewish folks who would be in these cities that he would walk into as he came into their synagogues. There was something we read over and over again. Uh, Acts 17. First off, too, no screen with scripture on it today, guys, obviously. Um, feel free to take notes if you have a pen. If not, our Monday moment email that goes out tomorrow. Uh, we'll make sure we have all today's scripture references in there so you guys can cross-reference me and yell at me if I mess anything up, okay? Acts 17, verses 1 through 3, this is what it says. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphiopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And a little bit later in that same chapter, verse 11 says, These Jews, he's talking about the Jews in Berea now, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And it says, They received the word with all eagerness. And again, it says that they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What we know about Paul tells us, we know that Paul is a, a well-educated man. We know that Paul is very well familiar with his scripture. He's familiar with the law. And even though we know that Paul was the chosen mouthpiece to, to reach the Gentiles, still so often what we see is the very first place that Paul goes when he comes into a new town is he goes to his own people. He goes to the chosen people. And when he stands before the Jews in their synagogue, Paul does not come to them with an argument that is based upon emotion. What Paul does is he comes and he opens God's word, he opens the scriptures that are available to him, and he reasons with them. He goes back and he looks at what the prophets of yesterday had said. 
And he reminds the people of what God had told them about this impending coming Messiah. And he uses the evidence in their own scriptures to prove to them that this Messiah, that he had come, that he had lived and that he had died and resurrected in his name was Jesus. Paul builds a case upon logic. He builds a case based on odds that would make it astonishing for all of these prophecies to be a mere coincidence. Uh, many scholars will tell you that in the Old Testament, there are 300 messianic prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfills. And I doubt that Paul would have probably walked into town and opened up and, and gone through all 300 of them. That does not seem very practical. But Paul would have had a, a handful of these prophecies that he knows he could go to, that he would be able to use to remind the observant Jews of what their own scripture said. And then he would show them how Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, how he fulfilled all of these prophecies. And when he would do this too, remember, not everyone would believe. It, it always says some would, most would. There would always be some that would look at the odds and say, no, thank you. And then there's others that would believe. Some would have the logical portion of their brain activated and they would be forced to make a decision. Right? What is the risk of what this man is presenting to me compared to what is the reward? And again, some would believe, some would place their faith in Jesus Christ as their resurrected Savior, and some would choose not to. It was back in the 1950s, uh, there was a man named Peter Stone. Uh, Peter was the chairman of mathematics at Pasadena College uh, out in California. And he decided that he wanted to figure out what were the mathematical odds of a man being born who would fulfill these messianic prophecies that, that were given in Scripture. A man that could check off all of these boxes by mere coincidence, not divine intervention. Right? Not because they were God's one and only son, but just maybe because they were born in the right place and at the right time. So he, he took a team of, of 600 student volunteers, and they did the math. And I'm grateful for that because it's math that I am not capable of doing. His team did not look at all 300 prophecies available. They picked just eight. And they established odds for each individual prophecy that a man from the time the prophecy was given up until present day would fulfill the prophecy given by mere chance. In their own words, as they did this math, they, they always erred on the side of conservative, right? They didn't want to exaggerate. After they had all of these individual odds, they then went and said, of these eight prophecies, what are the odds that one man would be able to fulfill all eight, right? Not, not all 300, but just eight, mind you. It would be like if I said the chances of winning that Mega Millions on the same day you got struck by lightning, right? And you have red hair, you're left-handed, and you were born on a leap day. Okay, essentially, these are the odds that they are trying to figure out. And here's what the math said. It says, the odds of one man coming and fulfilling just eight of these Old Testament prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power. Now, again, if you're like me and not a math major, that means ten times ten times ten times ten times ten, 17 times. It's a number so large, you see, I can't comprehend it, so they have to abbreviate it by calling it 10 to the 17th power. How I tried to comprehend this number in my mind is this. We know what a million is. 
we, we can visualize a million of something. We've all seen a movie where maybe a suitcase opens up with a million dollars in it. Okay, if any of you have any of those suitcases at home, let me know. But most of us probably only in the movies have we ever seen that. And we know that a million is a thousand thousands. And then if we want to try to visualize what a billion is, we know that a billion is a thousand millions. There's even people in this world now that are trillionaires, right? And we know that a trillion is a thousand billions. But here's where the math gets really crazy and really difficult for me to, to, to even visualize in my mind. After a trillion, a thousand trillions is called a quadrillion. Quadrillion. And 10 to the 17th power is 100 quadrillion. So the odds of someone fulfilling these prophecies is about one in 100 quadrillion. And you thought the Mega Millions was bad odds, didn't you? Right, I, I can't fathom these type of numbers. Okay, these numbers make no sense to me. There's no way that I can visualize what a 100 quadrillion of something might look like. The same mathematician who, who did these odds, he wrote a book, again, back in the 50s. Uh, the book was called Science Speaks. And in the book, he, he tries to paint this picture for us of what a hundred quadrillion looks like. And I want to read to you what he wrote. He said, suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and we lay them over the face of Texas. They will cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now take one of those silver dollars, stir up the whole mass, but on one of them, put a marking on. He says, now blindfold a man, tell him he can travel for as far as he wishes, but he must pick up only one silver dollar and it must be the right one. What chance does he have of finding the correct silver dollar? It's the same chance that the prophets would have of writing just these eight prophecies and having them all come true by any one man born from their day to present time, providing they were using their own wisdom. So before we head off today to hopefully enjoy some delicious food, play some volleyball, hopefully have me beat a few of you in a game of cornhole or two, I want to talk to you and give you just a few of these prophecies that Christ came and he fulfilled, proving that he was who he says he was. Uh, this is not intended to be a long and drawn out lecture today. Again, if you have a pen and you want to jot some of these verses down, please do. Again, though, tomorrow in your email box, I'll make sure that all of these references are there for you. Uh, we also will have this service posted and available on YouTube as well if you do want to go back and catch any of them. Our uh, first prophecy, it comes from all the way back in the book of Genesis. We can't go much further backwards than Genesis. It's Genesis 49, verse 10. And here's what it says about the Messiah and what line he would come from. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, we're told in this uh, scripture that this ruler is going to come. It's a ruler that all people are going to obey, and that power will never be removed from this ruler who comes from the line of Judah. We, we can look no further than the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 33. Uh, in Je Jesus' genealogy, it, it says that Jesus is the son of Judah. 
alone, again, this prophecy proves nothing. There's, there's many men who have been born who can claim to be of the line of Judah. In verse 33 alone, it lists five separate ones for us. What, what stacks these odds to this astronomical number is when the prophecies begin to build on top of each other. Because we also know that the, the coming Messiah, he was also to be born of the line of David. So from Judah to David, 10 generations or so go by where we're able to narrow this down. We now know that someone of David's offspring would come and rise up and would have a kingdom that, again, we're told is going to stand forever. And still, maybe it's not so impressive that a man would come and be born both of the line of Judah and David, but we can continue to come and we can narrow this down. Well, also, it's prophesied for us where this coming Messiah is going to be born. In Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me, should come forth me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Matthew 2, verse 1 says, Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We now have this Jesus who is born of the right genealogy and born in the right town. But did you know it was even foretold where Jesus' ministry would begin? Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2 says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Those, I'm sorry, in Matthew 4, verses 12 through 14, Jesus begins his ministry. It says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so that was spoken by the prophet I'm sorry, so what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Verse 17 of the same chapter says, From that time forward, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So now we have Jesus, born of the right line, who was born into the right place. He begins to preach his message of repentance exactly where Isaiah said he would 600 years earlier. The next prophecy we look at is one that maybe the Jews of his day would not have been so happy to be reminded about. We know that Jesus came to bring hope and grace to all people. But many of the Jews of that day, they did not want to accept this, even though it's very clear in their own prophets. They have been telling them for centuries and centuries that this was going to be the case. Isaiah 11.10 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse, again this Messiah, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He says, all nations shall inquire. This root of Jesse is going to stand for all peoples. All nations are going to come and seek him. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they recognize and see this happening with Jesus, but they don't put the pieces together. Uh, John chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, it says, The reasons why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Jesus of the right forefathers, born into the right 
town. His ministry begins in the right place and contrary to the day's popular belief, the whole world. And even up to today, the whole world is still pursuing this one man. It was also told that the coming Messiah, when he came, that he was going to perform signs and wonders. Again, the prophet Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. It's this particular prophecy, if you remember, uh, when Jesus sends word to John the Baptist. John finds himself in prison. Uh, he's possibly maybe in a little bit of a period of, of darkness. Maybe he's feeling a little bit depressed and, and questioning th some things. And John sends his disciples to find Jesus and specifically and directly ask him, are you the one that we have been waiting for? And while Jesus could have replied with a simple yes, and that would have been good enough, he does not. What he says in Matthew 11, verses 4 and 5, Jesus answers them and says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. He says, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. So we have a man from the line of Judah and the line of David, born in Bethlehem, who began his ministry in Galilee that would draw close all of the nations, who performs signs and wonders. Even the aforementioned John the Baptist himself, the fact that John came from the wilderness with this message proclaiming Christ was, Christ was also prophesied for us in Isaiah 40. Zechariah 9.9 tells me that the Messiah will enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Matthew 21 records Jesus doing just that on what we call Palm Sunday. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13 tells me that the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 27 confirms that that is the price that Judas was paid. Psalm 22:18 says that lots were going to be cast for his garments. And in John 19, we, we read of this same happening to Christ as he hung on the cross. One that's really interesting, uh, you see, we can go back to Exodus uh, 12 and Numbers 9, and here they talk to us about the Passover lamb. And it says that the Passover lamb was to never have any of its bones broken. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 19 and 20 specifically says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And we know that the Messiah was to be the fulfillment. The Messiah was meant to be the, the ultimate sacrificial Passover lamb. We were reminded always of how ugly Roman crucifixion was. We're reminded that sometimes those Roman soldiers, they wanted to speed this process up a little bit. Maybe they wanted to get home a little bit early. The weekend was fast approaching. And what the Roman soldiers would do is they would come by with a hammer, and as the men hung on the cross dying, they would shatter their legs, forcing all their body weight to come down and essentially suffocate them as they hung on the cross. But you remember, the Passover lamb was to never have any of its bones broken. John 19, verses 32 and 33 says this. It says, The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, 
they did not break his legs. Because even in death, Christ still fulfilled the word of God. Jesus was born of Judah in the line of David. He was birthed in Bethlehem. He began his ministry in Galilee. He was one who came that people of all nations would seek. He performed miracles. He was announced as coming by one who would come from the wilderness. His clothes had lots cast upon them. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We also know he was silent before his accusers. We know that his bones were never broken. You see, one man, Jesus Christ, he came and he fulfilled all just 12 of these prophecies and he fulfilled many, many more. The odds of his life playing out in this way and fulfilling just eight of these prophecies accidentally, again, is one in 10 to the 17th power or one in 100 quadrillion. You get to do whatever you want to do with those odds. But if when the odds are stacked against you, one to 300 million, you're still willing to part with $20 just to have a chance to win the lottery. When the odds are in your favor, 100 quadrillion to one, why on earth would you be willing to risk, risk something that is much more valuable than $20? And I don't want you to twist what I'm saying this morning and making it just some sort of simple math equation or some sort of just business transaction where, where all you're doing is just simply hedging your bets. That would certainly be a mistake for you to make. You know that 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Right? It is truly our faith that God seeks. But he did not leave us his word for no reason. He did not send his prophets with these messages for no reasons. He did it so that our eyes would be able to see his son clearer, so that our, our ears would be able to hear his words clearer, that we would be opened, our hearts would be softened to the overwhelming evidence that we can be saved by faith through Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, that by our faith in him, we are saved. We are going to close our, our message today and our service today, I should say, with, with a time of communion. I know we have a, a few new faces with us today. If you are visiting with us, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to participate in this time of communion with us. Uh, this is not something that is exclusively for members of this church. Anyone who I can call a brother and sister in Christ is encouraged to participate here. As the trays pass by you and our ushers are going to come forward during our final song, you're going to take the cup out of the tray. The cups are double stacked, bread in the bottom, juice on the top. We used to try it the other way with the juice on the bottom, but it was just a big mess. It doesn't work anywhere near as well. As those come by you, I want you to take those and take a moment to think about these amazing odds that we have been given. You'll take your communion as you are ready, as our final song is playing. Uh, again, after you take that communion, if you want to stay in your seats and sing, that's perfectly fine. If you want to stand up and sing along, we would love that as well. There's two pieces of scripture, and I know we've bounced all over the place this morning. It's a little bit different of a feel than one of our normal services, but, but there's two pieces of scripture that I want you to consider as we have this moment of communion. 
Uh, the first goes way back to Leviticus. It's Leviticus 17.11. Leviticus talks a lot uh, about uh, the blood, the blood of the lamb that would be sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. This verse says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And Jesus, again, in a way, he steps into this particular prophecy himself. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus speaks at the Last Supper. He says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus' blood was spilled on Calvary so that you could receive atonement for your sins, and not in a temporary way that would need to be repeated over and over, but Jesus' blood was a sacrifice given that was intended to be eternal and powerful. It's only because of the blood of Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, that same Jesus, the one in 100 quadrillion, that we are made clean. Pray with me, church. Father, we are grateful this morning. Um, we are grateful for this just beautiful place that you've given us, Father. How you've blessed this church. How you've put us in this place where, God, I believe exactly where you want us to be. God, I pray this morning for all the people that have driven past us on Walton Boulevard here uh, in their cars this morning heading to wherever they are. I pray for each and every one of them that someone is going to come and, and speak truth into their life and show them that these odds are so incredibly stacked in their favor that to deny them, that to walk away from such a sure thing when, when, when the, the, the risk is so great, God, would be foolish. Father, I pray that for those of us sitting here today who already know that truth and have already accepted it, that we are going to embrace that mission to be the one who is going to, to find those that are lost and share the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That he came to this earth, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he voluntarily laid down that life and was resurrected three days later, defeating death and making a way that every single one of these people that drives past the sound of my voice with their windows rolled up that have no idea what I'm saying right now, that all they have to do is call on the name of Jesus to repent of their sins that they too can be baptized and be brought out of the water clean and made new. Father, I also pray today as we take some time to fellowship with our church family, I pray that you will keep us safe. I am grateful for all of those who brought food today, who prepared food today, for our, our kitchen staff who's down there right now making sure everything is set up for us, Father. I pray that the food we eat today, that you will bless it to our body. I pray that the conversations that we get to enjoy this morning, Father, that you will bless it to our soul. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.